And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Each day when God finished his work of creation, he looked out on what he had done, and we are told that he saw that it was good. And then we come to the end of his creation work, and he looks out on all that he had accomplished, including the crown jewel of creation, mankind made in his own image. And we are told that he saw everything he had made, and it was very good. And then we come to chapter 6, and we see that same language of God looking out over his creation. He says, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God looks out on his creation again, and instead of goodness, he sees only wickedness and great continual evil. What happened? We saw Adam and Eve sin in chapter 3, We saw sin grow and intensify as Cain killed Abel in chapter 4. But God had promised that the seed of the serpent would not overcome, that it would be crushed, that the seed of the woman might be bruised, but that he would conquer. But so far, that seems to be turned on its head. Wickedness has prevailed over all the earth, and that hope of the woman's seed seems pretty dim right now. God's good creation, his very good image bearers, have been completely and utterly broken by sin. It's not just that their wickedness was great, but that their hearts were continually evil. Their wickedness was so great on the earth because everything had been corrupted by their sin. There was no part of them that hadn't felt the pain of that sin. They were supposed to nurture the rest of creation and cultivate it. And instead, they've weighed the earth down with the heaviness of their sin. They were supposed to walk with God in the garden but they've turned their backs on him and set themselves up as their own gods. God's image bearers have shattered his image. He can't just sit idly by and do nothing. And one of the reasons that the flood is so significant in the unfolding of the story of the gospel is this is the first time that God deals with sin on a corporate level. We saw God deal specifically with Adam and Eve's sin in the garden in chapter 3. We saw him deal specifically with Cain's sin in chapter 4. But this is the first time that he deals with the sins of the whole world. And what's his response to this wickedness? Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. 
it grieved him to his heart that he had made man. We saw his action in response to sin in chapters 3 and 4. But this is the first time that he reveals his heart's response to sin. And he's grieved by it. God himself, seated on his throne, surrounded by a myriad of angels who are constantly singing his praise, is pained by the sin of the world. He is transcendent. He is holy. He is separate. He is so far above us. And yet there is an intimacy and a nearness that he has with us as men and women that each sin is a new wound in his heart. He's grieved by the sin that he sees. And I'm not trying to diminish the fact that he's angry towards sin also. He is. But I think it's significant that here we have the first time God deals with the sins of the world all at once, and there's no mention of his anger in these chapters. As God begins to unfold the saga of his son's war against sin and death, he says the first thing that you need to understand about sin is that it grieves me to my heart. He looks out on his creation and on his very good image bearers and he sees the death and the corruption. He sees the oppression of our sin and it grieves him. He's broken hearted to see the pain and the misery that men and women have inflicted on themselves. How could he stand by and do nothing? He can't. It's not just his justice and his holiness. It's his love and his mercy that compel him to act. He wouldn't be good and loving towards us if he allowed mankind to just continue unchecked in their march towards greater and greater wickedness. His expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden in chapter 3 was an act of mercy to stop them from eating of the tree of life after their fallen state. And the flood that he's going to send here in chapters 6 and 7 is an act of mercy also to prevent mankind's hearts from sinking to deeper and deeper levels of wickedness. He must act. And so he says in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. He is going to wipe out all life on the planet. He is going to undo his good creation. But the hope of his promise that the seed of the woman would overcome is not lost. Because verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of his heart was evil continually. But God found favor, or but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Verse 9 goes on to describe Noah, saying that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, 
Noah walked with God. And this is a glowing tribute to Noah's life. Abraham was called righteous. Job was blameless. Enoch walked with God. But Noah is the only person as described as all three of those. He stood out in his generation. But the first thing we're told about him is that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah didn't find favor because he was so righteous and so blameless. He He didn't find favor because he walked so closely with God. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and so he was seen as righteous and blameless. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and that enabled him to walk closely with him. It was God's favor that produced these fruits in his life. The wickedness of man was great on the earth, and the intention of the, every intention of his heart was only evil continually. That includes Noah. But it was by God's grace that he found favor. This is not a story about the one person who was so good that he didn't deserve to die in the flood. Noah deserved to die in the flood as much as everyone else, but this is a story of a sinner who by God's grace was declared righteous. And having been declared righteous, God would preserve him through the flood. And through Noah, he would preserve the promise of the coming seed of the woman. He had not forgotten his people or his promises. God will preserve his people. And so God tells Noah what he's going to do. He says, I'm going to wash away the wickedness of the world. I'm going to blot out all life. I'm going to undo creation and give you a second start. So he tells Noah to build this massive ark for him and his family and the animals. So Noah obeys and builds the ark. And Hebrews 11 tells us, that Noah built the ark out of reverent fear, and in so doing, he condemned the world. In Peter's second epistle, he says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. Day after day, year after year, as Noah built the ark, he proclaimed to all of those around him, there is judgment coming. God can't sit by and watch us continue down this road. He will act. Reverent fear is the appropriate response to God telling you, I'm going to wipe out all life because of your sin. But there is hope, too. Because day after day, year after year, as Noah got closer and closer to the completion of the ark, he was also proclaiming there is a way of salvation. The ark just didn't just proclaim to the world that judgment was coming. It also proclaimed that there is salvation, that God had provided a way of escape. And the world ignored it and stood condemned. Noah was 600 years old when God commanded him to enter the ark. along with his family and pairs of every kind of animal, 
And chapter 7, verse 16 says, And the Lord shut him in. As we, read, as we read the account of Noah building it, you hear over and over again that Noah obeyed the Lord, that Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. But in the end, the Lord shut him in. It wasn't Noah's obedience, it wasn't all of Noah's effort in building the ark that saved him. It was the Lord shutting him in. God made it clear, he is the one who brings salvation. He is the one who is going to close up Noah and his family in his salvation and keep the waters of judgment out. It is God, not Noah, that's going to preserve his people. So God closes them up in the ark. He seals them up in his salvation. And he sends the flood, verse 17 of chapter 7. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, and creeping things, birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. God's judgment is a terrifying thing. This is not the fun story of a smiling old man and a bunch of cute animals in a boat that we make it out to be too often. This is probably the most popular story to turn into cute little toys and pictures and decorations for kids' rooms. But the ark wasn't a Disney cruise. This was the life preserver that, sa that was the only hope in a storm that killed everything on the planet. This was the most cataclysmic event in history. Every Man, woman, and child, every animal that was not on the ark died an agonizing death, gasping for air. And if that's not enough, it's not just life, but creation itself is being undone here. The imagery we see several times is of the waters coming up over the land. And this is meant to draw us back to chapter 1, where... The waters covered the face of the earth, and God drew up the dry land out of it. But here in the flood, the waters are reclaiming the dry land. Creation itself is being undone. God is taking his good creation and turning it back over to the formlessness and void that it once was because it was so broken by our sin.
God's judgment is a terrifying thing. But in the midst of the judgment and the terror, we come to the very center of the story. Everything that came before this has been building up to it, and everything that comes after it is built on top of it. The very center of the story, the heart of the story of the flood, is chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. It's not that he had forgotten him, like, oh, Noah, that's right. No, when, this, when scripture talks about God remembering someone, it is a call to action on God's part. When God remembers someone, it means that he is on the move, that he has remembered and he is going to bring salvation to his people. God had promised to preserve them and he remembered Noah. And so again, starting in verse 1 of chapter 8, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month of the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. In the flood, God undid creation. We saw the imagery of the waters coming back up and retaking the dry land. But the imagery now is of the waters receding. God is bringing the dry land up again out of the waters. This is meant to be a kind of new creation, a second start for humanity with Adam at its head as a kind of second, excuse me, as Noah as the head of humanity as a kind of second Adam. The word wind in verse 1, when it says that he caused a wind to blow over the earth, is the same word for spirit back in chapter 1, verse 1, when it says the spirit of God was over the waters. The spirit of God is over the waters. God is on the move again. He is remaking creation. Verse 13, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, Again, you have this new beginning, all these firsts. The waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Notice Noah's obedience again. He removed the covering of the ark, and the ground was dry, but he waited in the ark for another two months still 
until God commanded him to leave. Noah recognized it was God who put us in the ark, and it's God who's going to bring us out, and so I'm going to wait until he says to go out, even if the earth looks dry. And the first thing that Noah does is he builds an ark, or excuse me, he builds, a, he builds an altar, and he makes a sacrifice. This is that that sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The practical side of us might think, Noah, you really can't spare many animals right now. But just like Abel back in chapter 4, Noah recognized that God was his best. And so not only could he afford to, but he desired to give his best back to the Lord. His sacrifice was a pleasing aroma because it came from a heart of true devotion and worship. It wasn't the quality of the animals that he sacrificed, it was the quality of his heart that sacrificed them. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and that favor produced in him a heart that was a pleasing aroma. And so humanity's second start seems like it's off to a pretty good beginning. God has washed away the wickedness on the face of the earth. He's preserved his people through Noah. Noah has proved himself to be faithful and obedient to God in a fallen world. His sacrifice is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Would it turn out differently this time? Was this the promise of the seed of the woman being bruised but overcoming? We started out this morning seeing God's assessment of mankind's heart. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And now, after all of this, what's his assessment now? Second half of verse 21 of chapter 8. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The real problem still persists. We saw God undo creation and remake it, but he didn't remake Noah's heart. This second Adam was bound to fail because Adam's sin is still in his heart. This second start to creation is bound to fall back into corruption. And yet look at God's mercy in that assessment. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. He doesn't say, I will never do this again in spite of the fact that your hearts are evil. He says, I'm going to do this because I know your hearts are still evil. He sees the wickedness that is still buried deep in the hearts of his image bearers, and he says, it's because of that that I am not going to do this to you again. I know you're still evil. That's why I'm not going to send another flood. He goes on to promise Noah 
in verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And this is the first time that God uses the word covenant that he uses so often in scripture. This is a formal declaration of what his relationship will be like with mankind. One that's dependent not on us because we would immediately fail, but is dependent solely on the fact that he will remember the covenant he has made. He knows the evil of our hearts. It's because he knows that he's made this covenant. He says, I have set my bow in the clouds. The bow was a weapon of war, and God is saying, I have put my weapon down. It's no longer trained on the earth. I am not at war with my creation. He isn't ready to wipe us out at a moment's notice. He has made his covenant. And if we needed any further proof that we need a covenant like that, one that's not dependent on us, but on him remembering what he has said. Just remember how the story of Noah ends. We have this new creation, a new kind of Adam, one who has already found favor with God, one who is righteous and blameless and walks with God, and he's commanded to go and multiply and fill the earth the way Adam was supposed to. And what's the only thing we're told about his life after the flood? He planted a vineyard and got drunk. That is not a satisfying end to a story. Right? You, you have this long buildup. The hero is preserved through all the trials and tribulations. He makes it to the end. And then he just goes and gets drunk. Be like a fairy tale that doesn't end with, and the prince saved the princess and they lived happily ever after. But instead it ends with, the prince saved the princess and he was kind of a jerk. And they broke up. We don't want stories like that. We want a story with a better ending. We're supposed to want a story with a better ending here. We should see the ending of this story and be left wanting more. What we want is a better Noah. And we need a better Noah. Because God has hung his bow in the heavens and said that he'll never destroy all flesh again with a flood. But our hearts are still evil, and he still has to deal with that. We need a better Noah. 
because there's a better flood coming. Scripture is filled with warnings about the day of the Lord. And there are a lot of things that could be said about that. But just listen, you don't have to turn there. Just listen to one of the warnings in Isaiah 13, starting in verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with anger, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the great day of his fierce anger. The flood was terrifying, but it pales in comparison to this. But God will preserve his people. I hope it's fairly obvious where I'm going with this. Jesus is our better Noah. God will preserve us through him. Noah preserved the people of God through the flood, but, but Jesus preserves us from the full judgment of the wickedness of our hearts. Noah was a sinner who found favor by grace. But Jesus finds favor with the Father on his own merits. Noah was declared righteous and blameless. Jesus is righteous himself. Not only he is righteousness itself, the source of all righteousness in creation. Noah was declared righteous, and so God spared his wife and children as well. But Jesus actually gives his righteousness to us. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked with God. But Jesus has spent eternity sitting at the right hand of the Father, and the Father has declared that he is well pleased with his Son. Noah was obedient in building the ark to save his own life and the life of his wife and children. But Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to save us, his natural-born enemies, and make us his bride and his children. God undid creation in the flood, but on the cross, the creator himself was undone. He took all of the judgment on himself and wrapped us up in himself and kept us secure. And so he becomes not just our better Noah, but our better ark, wrapping us in his salvation, taking all of the blows of God's judgment as wave after wave hit him while we were secure inside. Remember 
the central verse of the story, chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah. But on the cross, in the midst of his judgment, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God remembered Noah. But the father turned his face on the son for a moment. But that moment has passed, and he is at this, he's seated at the right hand of the father again. And we can be confident that the father will always remember the son and those who are in him. Because now we are the new creation. God undid creation and remade it, but that didn't change Noah's heart. He didn't remake Noah's heart, but he has remade ours. Jesus has taken our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh. And if God was gracious to Noah, even though his heart was still evil, how much more gracious is he to us now that we have the very heart of Christ? And his act of recreation doesn't end with our hearts either. Because he promises that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. One unencumbered by the weight of our sin. Where we can walk with him again. That we can live face to face with him and walk with him as Adam and Eve did in the garden. Where we will finally have rest from the pain and the oppression and the brokenness and the toil of our sin. Noah's name means rest. His father named him that, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. His father understood that Noah had some part to play in God's promise. But Noah never brought that rest that his father hoped for. But we finally have that rest in Jesus. And even though we don't always feel it now, we will enter into that rest fully. Noah was promised by God that he put his bow in the heavens. But Jesus brings us not just a ceasefire, but true everlasting peace with the Father. And there is rest in that. Jesus is our better Noah. He will preserve his people on the day of judgment. But that day is still coming. Jesus said in Luke 17, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. We live in a, a day like Noah's day. And there's comfort in that because Peter says, if God knew how to preserve Noah through the flood, it means that he knows how to preserve his people. There is comfort in knowing that we live in days like Noah's because it is a promise that if he preserved Noah, he will preserve us too. We are secure in that. 
But in our day-to-day lives, do we live like that? Do we live like the flood is coming? Or are we living more like the world, eating and drinking and going about our day? This is the way it's been. This is the way it's going to be. We know that isn't true, but how easy is it for us to fall into the routine of day-to-day life and go all day or all week living like this is it? Or are we living like Noah, fully aware of what is coming and obediently waiting on the Lord? It was God who shut Noah up in the ark. It was God who saved Noah. But God still commanded Noah to build the ark. It's Jesus who will preserve us on that day of judgment. We are secure in that. He has already shut us up in himself. We are safe. But we're still called to live in obedience to him. He has done all of this. He has saved us. He has shut us up in himself. How can we not desire to live like that day is coming? How can we not desire to obey him and live for him? We know that day is coming. Peter called Noah a herald of righteousness. Do our lives shout to the world around us, there's a flood coming. There is a judgment. God cannot allow this to continue. He cannot bear to see this pain and oppression. Do our lives shout to the world around us, even though all of that is true, there is still hope. Does the world look at us and know that we are people who are confident in the fact that there is a way of salvation? Or do they just see other people going about their everyday lives? We are living in the days of Noah. God will preserve us. May he give us the grace to live through them the way Noah did. Let's pray. Lord, you promised, as we read earlier in Isaiah, that this is like the days of Noah, that you swore the waters would never go over the earth again, that you will not be angry with us or rebuke us, Lord, we deserve your anger and your rebuke. We deserve the flood. We deserve the day of the Lord. But we know that you have provided a way of salvation for us. That you have made your covenant of peace with us. A covenant built on the body and blood of Christ. Lord, you have promised that you would have compassion on us. Have compassion on us, Lord. And Lord, we long to see the day when we fully have rest in you. We long for the day when we can walk with you again in the garden. 
We have confidence of that day in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.